It is very good to see each of you. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you uh, yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I am uh, the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you are worshiping online with us. I'd encourage any of you that are worshiping online um, to come check us out on a Sunday morning here in the building at some point. We would love to have you here in the building. Uh, we know that the online service is helpful for many different ways, uh, but ideally the best is for us to be in this same room together, worshiping together. So um, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I would love that opportunity. After the service is over with, I'll be near the front door and you can kind of swing by and introduce yourself. We are in uh, a series through the book of Acts. We are still working our way through chapter one. And if you picked up a worship guide as you came in, you'll see that actually next week we'll be jumping over to chapter two. Every week at the bottom of the sermon notes, there's kind of a preview where we're going the next week. That way you can uh, read that ahead of time if you'd like to and uh, kind of be uh, ready for the, the message. But we're going to finish up chapter one today. If you've got a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to grab that, turn to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter one. If you don't have a Bible handy, there should be one in a chair near you or underneath you or something like that. You can use that Bible. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to take that home with you. We'd love for you to, to have that from us. Um, I don't know if y'all remember this little device or not. Um, anybody remember this little thing? You seen this before? There we go, there we go. Some of us older uh, folks, I didn't call you old. Sorry, sorry, I didn't call you old, Kristen. Um, some of us that are not as young as others in the room may remember this. I totally didn't mean to say that. All right, so this is the magic eight ball, right? And uh, either my eyes are bad or they don't design them like they used to because I can't read all of the things when they come across. But anyway, the idea is that you could use this to kind of see what maybe your future held or whatever. My question would be this. What would you think if a person made all of their major decisions by using the eight ball? Would that be wise? Okay, would you, what would you think if I said at every elders meeting, we have this bad boy right on the table, and whenever we need to make a decision about the church, we just go, I don't know, Nathan, what do you think? And we shake it up and go, yep, we should do that. Would that be ideal for us to make decisions for the church based on a magic eight ball? Okay, the answer would be a big fat no. Uh, and the good news is we don't do that. But I wanted to bring this today. And by the way, I want to say thank you to my good friend Cameron Wells who let me borrow this. Um, I wanted to bring this today because the passage of Scripture we're looking at today has maybe a first century version of the magic eight ball and we'll walk through that passage together but before we do that i thought i would give it one whirl uh, it is super bowl sunday so i've got a very important question to ask this and that is will the dallas cowboys make it to the super bowl next year so let me shake this up and see <laughs> hannah i need to see you after the service uh, it says this, and I kid you not, it says, it is certain. It's a done deal. All right, we know it don't work. All right, there we go. All right, let's look at God's word together. We are in chapter one to kind of bring us up to speed in case you haven't been here or maybe you've slept since last week. By the way, all of our sermons are online. You can always go back and watch them. But last week, we looked at a passage in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and we see that the disciples, the apostles, they are, in essence, in a quarantine. Not a COVID quarantine, but they're in a quarantine because God said, Jesus said, at his ascension, when he went back to heaven, 
Jesus said, disciples, I need you to be my witnesses, but first, wait on the Holy Spirit. And so stay in the city of Jerusalem. We see that in verse 4. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and, and they use the, the time that they have together wisely. We saw last week that they obeyed Jesus and what he told them to do. We see that they're in community, and they're unified. And in fact, the word that's used uh, back in verse 14 says that they are in one accord. And then we see that they pray expectantly. So they are ready to hear from God. I think my voice is going to be okay this week, but I do need to drink here. So they are ready to hear from God. So let's pick up the story. <clears throat> Verses 15 through 26. In those days, the 10 days that the disciples are waiting on the Holy Spirit to come, in those days, Peter, who was oftentimes seen a leader as the, as, of the disciples, and sometimes he just kind of steps out and makes statements, and so he stands up. And he stands up among the brothers, and it says the company of persons that was with them was about 120. <clears throat> and here's what he said. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's talking about David, who wrote the Old Testament Psalms, the most of them, and, and he's talking about Judas, who betrayed Jesus. It says that the, that the Holy Spirit spoke this ahead of time. It says Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, because he betrayed Jesus and showed them where he was. Verse 17. For Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that's how I say it, that is, field of blood. Now, I know you may be wondering kind of what's going on. We're going to fill in the pieces in just a moment. It says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. So now he's quoting David. Here's what he quotes. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then he quotes another Psalm. Let another take his office. So he's basically saying Judas has, has, has betrayed Jesus. Judas has um, walked away from the faith. Judas has died, and we need a replacement for him. And the scripture seems to say the same thing. So it says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Here were the two men that they had decided on. Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, and he's got another name. He was also called Justice. And then they also put forward Matthias. And then they prayed in verse 24, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, <clears throat> here's what's going on. Jesus had 12 disciples. Jesus had 12 apostles. And they followed him everywhere that he went. They saw everything take place. 
And then towards the end of his earthly ministry, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, decided to betray Jesus, and he showed the authorities where Jesus was. Whenever he did that, then we find out from the Gospels that he received 30 pieces of silver. And then after he got the silver, he didn't repent for his sin, but he somehow was ashamed of his sin. And so he goes and he throws the, the, I started to say tokens, the pieces back at at the, the religious rulers. And then we find out from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 that he went out and he hanged himself. So Judas is is dead. Judas has walked away from the faith. Judas has died. And so now Peter says, we need to do something about this. We need a replacement. So how is the early church going to make a decision about who the next apostle would be? Before I go into that, I do want to talk for just a moment Let's consider the gory story of Judas's ending. We see it here in Acts chapter 1, down in um, verse, uh, let's see, verse 18. The, the picture that he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It also talks about how he went to the place that he belonged. What we see here is this. Judas serves as a warning for all of us. Judas pursued sin. It seemed like a good idea to him. It it seemed good, like I'm going to get 30 pieces of silver, so let me get my reward. And then we find out that sin does what it always does. Instead of it leading to fun and games, it leads to destruction. And in this sense, it directly led to Judas's death. And we see that Sin is judged. So my encouragement to us, not as a sidebar, it doesn't go directly with my main points of my message. It's a major thrust in this text, though. I want us to remember that sin leads us from God's plan every single time. That's the very definition of sin. It's not fun. It leads to destruction and chaos and death. So let's use Judas's example as a, a, a warning to us that we should run from, flee from, avoid sin at all costs. Judas was the proverbial man that Jesus talked about when Jesus said, what is it good for us to gain the world and yet lose our soul? Judas gained money and perhaps notoriety among the religious leaders and yet he lost it all. So as a result of that, because of his apostasy, because of his death, because of him no longer being in the equation, Peter stands up and he says, hey guys, it's time for us to have a 12th apostle. We need a 12th witness to go with us. Who is that person going to be? And so how are they going to make the decision? They're not going to use an eight ball, but they're going to use something quite interesting. But before we get there, let us see what they do. First thing I want to point out is go back at some point and read verses 12 through 14. We preached through that last week, but 12 through 14 shows us that they are prepared to hear from God because they are in an attitude of of unity and and, and seeking after God and obeying God. And so because of that, they can hear more clearly. And guys, if we want to make a decision that honors God, then we've got to have the same kind of thing going on in our lives. 
seeking unity among our brothers and sisters, seeking insight from one another, seeking the Lord's guidance through prayer, uh, seeking to obey him in all matters so that we can hear from him. So in this scenario, how do they make their decision? I've got three things on the back of your sermon notes that you can, uh, back of the worship guide on the sermon notes that you can follow along with. The first one is this, when making a decision, hold fast to the truth of God's word. Hold fast to God's word. Look in verse 16. The very first thing that Peter says when he stands up and addresses the brothers in the room, the fellow believers of Jesus Christ, he said, the scripture. The first two words out of his mouth points to the scripture. He says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So we see that Peter acknowledges from the very beginning that his argument for any decision to be made must begin with what Scripture reveals about who God is. Whenever you and I make decisions, we must start there. You see, God reveals himself, God reveals his will through the Scripture, and he reveals that to you and to I as well. So whenever we talk about reading our Bible, whenever we talk about studying our Bible, whenever we we talk about going through a class maybe that covers Scripture, or whenever we preach it, or whenever we get in a hope group and talk about Scripture, or whenever we get in a D group and talk about Scripture, we're not just talking about some kind of history or narrative or story or neat stuff. We're talking about God's revealed Word to us that should guide every single thing that we do. I love what Peter says. In verse 16, he says, the Holy Spirit spoke it, and he did it beforehand, and he did it by the mouth of David. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to refer back to the Scripture. I'm going to refer back to what we today call the Old Testament. I'm going to refer back to the book of Psalms. But the reality is, David wrote it down on paper, if you will. I know it wasn't paper, it's papyrus, but David wrote it down. But it wasn't David that said it, it was the Holy Spirit. See, God chose to use men whenever Scripture was written. But it was always his inspired word and not the word of the person putting it on paper. So it's God's word. We're not listening to what David has to say. We're listening to what the Holy Spirit had to say. And the Holy Spirit just happened to choose to use David in this scenario. You should be hopefully familiar with 2 Timothy. If, if, you're, if you've been around church very much, if you haven't, then that's, that's, that's okay. Let's look and see what Scripture has to say about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. All Scripture, that's Old Testament, that's even the Song of Solomon, that's even Leviticus, that's the New Testament, that's all of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what Peter said a moment ago. All scripture is breathed out by God, and because of that, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God either may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Peter and Paul are agreeing. Whenever we're making any decision, whenever we're consulting anything in life, let's go back to see what God has to say about it. And the way that we know what God has to say about it is by looking at his inspired, inerrant, truthful word that still applies today, just as much as it did 2,000 years ago, whenever they were addressing it. It says that, back in Acts chapter 1, 
It says that the Holy Spirit spoke it beforehand by the mouth of David. That word beforehand here, yes, chronologically beforehand. It had happened hundreds or a thousand years ago, but really the beforehand here means foretold. It means prophecy. It's that God used the words of David to speak something that David didn't even know he was referring to, and Peter, knowing God's words, able to apply God's word to his current circumstance. And so whenever you look down in verse 20, it says it's written in the book of Psalms, and, and there's one sentence there, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and then the word and, and then let another take his office. He's quoting two of the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Psalms. You may want to jot it down in your notes. Psalm 69, 25 is the first one, Psalm 69, 25. And then the second one is Psalm 109, verse I love what he says also in verse 16 it says the scriptures had to be fulfilled he's saying that scripture all of it from beginning to end is one continuous story of God's redemptive purposes and plan among his people it's not just uh, um, you know a story here separated by another story here separated by another story here and instead all that takes place has to be fulfilled and completed because it's one complete story So even in the Old Testament, even in the book of Psalms of all places, it references what the apostles are dealing with in that moment because of the betrayal of Judas. Psalm 69, Psalm 109, many other psalms are similar in the sense that they talk about attacks from the unrighteous. The psalmist, David, is saying, God, I'm being attacked by these individuals. And because I'm being attacked by these individuals, would you handle it? Would you deal with it? Would you give justice where justice is due? Would you bring judgment on those who are hassling me, those that are not following your way? And it's less about David not getting his way. It's the fact that these people that are attacking him are unrighteous and wicked and sinful and in their transgressions. And and David says, judge them accordingly. And so here's the deal. Peter now is taking the same principle and says that likewise Judas was a man who was unrighteous. And so God, you've brought about his judgment that he deserved. Look in verse, um, let's see, wickedness, where is it? Somebody is going to get us, there it is, start saying, I'm going to give you a brownie point if you found it. Wickedness, verse 18, it describes Judas's action. And it says that the field that he had was a reward that was purchased with his, um, um, with his uh, proceeds of his wickedness. The word wickedness here is a compound word in the Greek. And it, it basically takes the word non or un and put it in front another, of another word. So it says unrighteous, unjust. It's calling the actions of Judas as being an unrighteous person, an unjust person. And in this scenario, justice has been served because as a result of his actions, Judas experiences the judgment of God. Look down in verse 25. In verse 25, it says that Judas turned aside so that he would go to his own place. This is actually a euphemism to say Judas ended up in hell. 
Like Judas disobeyed God, never was with Jesus. He did his own thing. He wasn't repentant of his sin, and he chose to go his own route, which was ended up in a place called hell because of the judgment and fate that God brings. Now, I share all of this because it goes right hand in hand with this concept of believing the truth of God's word because Peter is using God's word to point to what took place in Judas's life. And you and I must turn to God's word as well. But all too often in this culture that we live in, things are tossed our way and there's a whirlwind of confusion. And in fact, sometimes even churches and so-called Christians throw these things our way that seem to indicate this is what we should do. But the reality is we are being challenged by things in our culture that are against God's word. And if we say yes to the winds of other doctrine, then we're going to go in the wrong direction. I'm not the world's best person when it comes to directions. I can't really operate a compass very well. And in my truck, who's the stripped-down version of a vehicle from uh, the early 2000s, it has no compass in it. And the other day, I, I was having lunch with someone, and I needed to leave where I was. I was in on university and I needed to go to downtown Bryan and I began to follow the GPS on my phone and I was so confused because I didn't know where I was headed. Uh, Bryan streets are a little bit different than College Station streets. The, the South College Station, everything's kind of squared off. Like I kind of know which way to go. Like it's, it's kind of right angles. And in Bryan, it's kind of like it just goes all over the place and I didn't know where I was. All that to say that I have a poor sense of direction. The reality is in our lives, all too often, every time left our own devices, we have a poor sense of direction on what decisions to make. And unless we have a sense of direction based on the scripture, we will get lost every single time. So whenever we need to make a decision, whenever we need to go through this life, let's filter it through what God's word has to say in all matters. We must make our decisions in light of what the teachings of scripture says. So whenever you think about relationships, and how to re relate in your own life with people, look to Scripture. Whenever it comes to finances and how to spend our money, look to Scripture. Whenever you think about actions you need to take, whatever they may be, look to principles in Scripture to follow them. Whenever you want to think about sexuality or, or gender matters, we don't need to listen to what others say. God's Word is clear on those matters. Let's follow God's Word every time. Whenever you consider other areas of your life, like how to vote, every time how we vote should be based on what Scripture says. How to function uh, as a church, how do we make decisions as a church, not an eight ball. What does Scripture have to say to us? We must never compromise on the truth of God's Word. So, that's exactly what Peter and the apostles demonstrate for us. So to get back to kind of the main story, they're needing a, another apostle. And so it says in God's word that they present two men. That they bring two men as nominees or candidates or guys that they felt like might be good choices. And so their names are Joseph and Matthias. And what we know about both of these men is that they fit the criteria. Look back at verses 21 and 22. Whenever they think about who is it that needs to fill the shoes of Judas, who needs to be the next apostle, who needs to make the 12th apostle, they had some qualifications that are found in verses 21 and 22. 
It says this man must be someone who's been with us during the whole time of Jesus' ministry. So they had to be with them all along and eyewitnesses of the things that took place. And even more importantly than that, or alongside of that, we see at the end of verse 22 that this individual must be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. So, they found two men. And as far as they could tell, both these men fit the criteria. Either one of these men would be sufficient, but they're at an impasse. What are they going to do about it? So we see the second step of sensing the Lord's direction, and that is seeking God's leading through prayer. It's there on your notes. Seek God's leading through prayer. Verses 24 and 25 have their prayer. Here's their prayer. It says, you Lord, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. So they're seeking the Lord's counsel. They're seeking his guidance. They're seeking what he has to say. And so what we see here is this, that in consultation with God's word, we must add the piece of prayer because without prayer, then we're not going to be able to study and understand and interpret and apply God's word without the Holy Spirit guiding the process. So every time we study God's word, we should be doing so in an attitude of prayer. So prayer is the only way to correctly interpret and apply the scripture. In this chapter, chapter 1, we've already seen two times a heavy emphasis on prayer. The first emphasis is found in verse 14. In verse 14, we find out that they were devoted to prayer. That means they held fast to it. They continually prayed. They persistently, expectantly prayed. And then here in verse 24, we see that they pray again. And as they pray... They acknowledge that God is omniscient. Have you heard that phrase before, omniscient, or that word? Omniscient just simply means knows all things. And God, the sovereign Lord, creator of it all, he is omniscient and he knows everything. And so their praying to him indicates that they believe that to be the case. In fact, if you look at their prayer in verse 24, it says, Lord, you know the hearts of all. It's interesting the, the phrase in the English that says know the hearts is actually one word in, in Greek. It's a compound word. Let me try to pronounce it. It's cardionosta, G-N-O-S-T-A. Cardionosta. It's a compound word. Cardio, you probably recognize that word, right? It means heart. And then nosta comes from the word Gnostic. You ever heard the word Gnostic? It means knowledge or to know. And so it, it's saying that God knows the heart of his people. So they're saying, hey, God, we're ready to choose a leader. We don't really know who to choose, but we know you know hearts, and therefore we're trusting in you. We see a similar uh, thing take place back in 1 Samuel. I want to read it to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the story goes this way. Samuel has been sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel back in the day. So he goes to Jesse, and he meets Jesse's boys. The first son of Jesse comes out. It's not the one that God has chosen. In fact, God chooses the youngest, who is David. But, but, but Samuel presumes, hey, this guy looks good. I think he's probably the right choice. Let's see what God has to say about it in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse, uh, let's see, verse 7. Here's what God says. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so here are the disciples. They're leaning back on a choice that needs to be made about who the next apostle is going to be. And they're believing that God knows the hearts of all men. And therefore, they're going to let him choose. And maybe you saw it in the prayer. In Acts chapter 1, it says, God, you know the hearts, and so you show us who you have chosen. So prayer was for them to get in God's will to understand who he had selected, not so that they could make the decision, but knowing that God had already made the decision, and through prayer, they're going to trust that he's going to answer their prayer. My question is this. Whenever you need to make a decision in your life, do you believe that God knows what you need to do? Do you believe that God has already chosen what you need to do? And do you pray believing that he's going to answer your prayer? Prayer is something that we in our own individual lives as well as a church family need to see the importance of it and uh, accelerate uh, or, or, or improve upon the use of prayer, trusting in God. You see, in this scenario, they acknowledge and see that prayer is actually less about me telling God something, and it's more about him telling me something. Whenever I come to God in prayer, part of that prayer is to put me in alignment with his will, and it's through praying that I begin to hear his voice more clearly. I begin to understand his word better, and therefore I can be in alignment with what he is telling me. Through prayer, we learn God's heart, and he changes our heart so that we can reflect his heart. Through prayer, we learn his heart, and he changes our heart to reflect his heart. I want to encourage us to learn some things from these early followers of Jesus as it relates to prayer. Here's kind of some bullet points. I got four things of a bullet point list to say about what we learned from them. First, let's devote ourselves to prayer. We see that terminology used in verse 14. We see it lived out again in verse 24. We'll see it over and over and over through the book of Acts. Devote ourselves to prayer. The second one, I would say, is as we devote ourselves to prayer, that means that we should pray before we do anything else. This week I got a text from a friend of mine who happens to be a church member, and when they texted me, they told me of, of a thing, a tragedy that happened in their family's life, and I texted back, hey, can you talk on the phone? And they said, sure, so I called them, and when I called them, I began to talk, and then I realized, whoa, 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 hold up. Like, there's really nothing I have to add to this equation, Let's seek the Lord together. And I said, let me stop talking and let's pray about this thing you're going through. My question is, in our lives, how quick are we to try to take action? Or do we first realize before we do anything else, we must seek the Lord's help? And as we pray, here's the third bullet point. Allow God to align you to his will through prayer. Allow God to align you to his will. And then as a result of that, Make a decision. That's the fourth bullet point. Make decisions in the context of prayer. I'm going to encourage you, challenge you, ask you to do something this morning. Right in front of you, in a chair, either right in front of you or beside you, is a connection card. On the back side is a prayer request card. 
would you consider doing something this morning? Regardless of how big or small your prayer is, would you consider allowing your church family, we have a prayer team for this, it's not, we don't blast it across Facebook or the website, but would you allow your church family to pray for you? Maybe you never turn a prayer request card in. Would you consider doing that today? Like even right now as I'm talking, would you maybe pick up that prayer request card? It looks like this and jot down your prayer request. And maybe you go, you know what? I don't want anybody to see this. I want it to be secret. I'd rather kind of remain anonymous. Like I'd, I'd ask you to consider putting your name, but if you feel the need to not put your name on there, would you at least put a prayer request on here? If you're needing to do it online, you can go to the Hope. There's a place where you can find the prayer request card. But would you take in these next few moments a moment to list how we as your church family can pray for you this week? It may be small. It may be ginormous, but we have got to elevate the importance of prayer, and I encourage you to do that very thing today. And then whenever we dismiss, there's a, an offering box in the back of the room, and let's fill that offering box up with prayer requests so we can be praying for each other. So as you do that, as you prayerfully consider what you want to put on that, let's go back to this idea of, of prayer and how that's one of the steps of, 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 of making a decision in life. So why is it that we aren't? seeing the importance of prayer what keeps us from praying here's some things that i think keep us from praying first of all we kind of think you know what we know i know it all like i don't need god's help let me just say that is the wrong answer only god knows it all another reason why we sometimes don't pray is because we think we're too busy i love this quote maybe you've heard it before have you heard of martin luther back in the day one of the early church oh not early church one of the church reformers here's what luther said one day when someone was talking to him they said hey martin would you tell me what does your day involve tomorrow he said i have work 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 and more work to do and because of that here's what he said i have so much to do that i shall spend the first three hours in prayer now i'm not giving you a guilt trip I'm not telling you you have to replicate that and spend three hours from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. every morning praying, but I am saying that whenever we say we're too busy to pray, that also is the wrong answer. If you're busy, that means we have all the more things to pray about, right? Right? Okay, maybe not, maybe not. I think it's true. All right, here we go. Here's another reason why we sometimes don't pray, because of the noise around us. We need to shut off the noise, and I'm one of the noisiest people. Like I talk all the time. I, I like to have music going all the time. I like to have my headphones in, all of that. We just need to chill and relax and we need moments of silence. Do you hear that? When's the last time that might have felt like a minute. It probably was 10 seconds. When is the last time you just sat in the presence of God, pouring your heart out to him and listening to him? If we're not careful, our prayer time is help me get good grades, help me to raise my parents, not raise my parents, that's not the, help me raise my kids, help me to make the right choice here, give me more money, uh, give me wisdom, give me a break at work. Uh, we just kind of list all of these things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to list these things to God. 
but sometimes we fill our prayers with so much noise that we don't sit and hear his voice. Another reason why we don't pray is because we think we don't need help. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. Which brings us to the last point. Howard did a good job this morning of showing us that we need to trust in God. And so the way that we're going to make decisions in life is in light of what Scripture teaches, seeking the Lord in prayer, and then those two things combined points out our need to completely, it's point three on your notes, completely trust in God. Brings us to the eight ball, the equivalent of the eight ball. Look down at verse 26. After they had consulted Scripture, after they had talked among themselves, after they had chosen two men that might be good options, after they prayed that God would see the hearts of the men that would show them who the right choice is, they did the most logical thing. Look at verse 26. And so they cast lots. You know what lots are, right? We're going to talk about that. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he became the 12th apostle. There's a principle here that I see before we start talking about lots. The principle is this, that as we study God's word and as we pray for God's guidance, we must trust in his sovereignty. The disciples knew that the choice was God's to make and they were good with that. They trusted him. So they pulled out the lots. A lot would mean that you would take a, a little pebble or stone or maybe a potsherd, which is a broken piece of pottery, or maybe a little piece of wood, something that's small. And on that, you would write the name. I don't know if they wrote Joseph or Barsabbas or Justice, but they wrote one of those guys. He had three names. He wrote his name on one. They wrote Matthias on the other. They put two names on a little, two separate stones or something like that. They put it in some kind of container Here's what they did. They played a little Yahtzee. They shook that thing up, and they dumped out one name, and that one name was Matthias. I don't know about y'all, but that seems weird to me. It's almost like the eight ball. It's like they need to decide who the next apostle is, so let's draw a name out of a hat. Let's draw straws. Let's pull out the dice and roll the dice and let that decide who the next apostle is going to be. I know what some of you may be thinking, why didn't they just vote? Like, they got two guys, why didn't they just vote? I don't really know why, but let me suggest one thing. They didn't really quite know the idea of voting back then, right? Like, their government was not set up, hey, who do you want to vote for the next king of, of uh, Israel? Who do you want to vote for for the next Caesar of Rome? Like, no, you didn't get to vote. They didn't have that example in their culture what, what example they did have was lots. A little side note, all too often, we as Christians in America or any other country, we look to how our government runs or how culture runs and we make our decisions based on what they do. I'm not saying it's wrong to vote. I definitely want you to vote at the polls. I want you to vote when our church takes votes. But they didn't resort to a vote. They cast lots. And so what is this idea of casting lots? And why would they do it? Let's look at the biblical precedence for it. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8. Are you familiar with the Day of Atonement? 
It was the day where once a year the people of Israel would see God put figuratively the sins, uh, or the priest put the sins of the people on a goat, and there would be two goats, right? And one of them would be the scapegoat, and, and the way they would choose which goat was which was actually done with lots. Day of Atonement, a huge day in the people of Israel. Look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8. And Aaron cast lots, or he shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel, which could be the word scapegoat. Let's keep looking. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 talks about lots. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but here's the key. The decision of the lot is from the Lord. Look at Proverbs 18, verse 18. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. So instead of campaigning for office with these two guys, giving the best speech they ever could have, instead of having a debate between these two guys, instead of them trying to decide who it is, they said, you know what? We firmly believe that God has chosen the right man, so let's trust him. Let's take ourselves out of the equation. Instead of us inserting ourselves, let's use lots to determine it. Now, let me clarify something real quickly. As we walk through the book of Acts, there will be places where we ask the question, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? In other words, does it simply describe what the church did or does it prescribe that we're supposed to do the same thing? It's very clear to me, and I hope it is to you as well, that this passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So you don't have to worry. We're not going to start casting lots when we make decisions as a church body. But my question is, will we take the principle here? Because anytime there's a description and not a prescription, there's still a principle behind it. And the principle behind this is this, that we are to trust God and his sovereignty when we make decisions. So my question is this. Whenever we make decisions as a church, whether it's a ministry leader that makes a decision, whether it's the church staff that makes a decision, whether it's the elders that make the decision, whether it's the deacons that are making a decision on how to serve the body of Christ, whether it's taking a vote as a church body, in all of those ways, can we step up and believe that each of those entities will begin first and foremost with Scripture. They will bathe their decision in prayer. And then once a decision is made, that we can walk in trust that God is in control. And we can have faith and confidence in Him. And not in the men and the women that make the decisions. But the confidence is in the Lord. But you know what? All too often when we make decisions in our own lives... Whenever we make decisions as churches, I'm not, I'm not picking on us as a church, I'm talking about churches in general. Whenever we make decisions, all too often, if we're not careful, we will listen to our echo chamber, and we will make decisions based on echo chambers. I, I'm sure you've heard of the phrase echo chamber, right? I, whenever I talk, there's a big old echo chamber, I guess, but here, because I've got a loud voice and it bounces everywhere. Anyway, here's the definition that I found online. If it's online, it's got to be correct, though. I, I think it's pretty close. It says this, an echo chamber is an environment in which the same opinions are repeated, sorry, let me start again, an environment in which the same opinions are repeatedly voiced and promoted. And because of our echo chambers, all too often we're not exposed to other ideas. May I step out a bit and say that the only echo chamber we should listen to is God himself. 
And what I mean by that is his voice should be resonating through everything we do because we're spending time in his word. We're spending time with other believers discussing his word. We're spending time in prayer. We're spending time seeking to allow him to do his work in our lives. We're spending time seeking the Holy Spirit. And it's what does he say? What does his word teach? Let's not listen to any other voices. Let's listen to his voice alone. So let's search the scriptures for truths. Let's pray that God would make his choice clear to us and let's trust his sovereignty through it all. Let's seek to do all of this in the community of a church family, which is one reason why I said that when the opportunity presents itself, we would love for those of you online to be able to be here in the building with us because we need each other. You need us, we need you, and the same goes for everybody that's in this room. If Living Hope is the church that God has brought you to, then let's lean in with each other, love one another well, serve one another, listen to God together, let's trust his sovereignty together because God is up to some good things and the only way that we can make decisions in our lives and in, in the life as a church is if we follow these steps in community. So perhaps you're faced with some decisions. Sometimes the answer is quite obvious. And really, I, hear me say the whole thing here, okay? I'm not telling you not to pray, but sometimes prayer is not really necessary. God's word is clear. Greed is a sin. God's word is, says that any sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman is a sin. So there are some things that you really honestly don't have to pray much about because God's word is clear. Maybe you need to pray about God giving you the power to live up to it, but there are some things God's word is abundantly clear. There's no gray, it's black and white, and we need to follow that. There's other times, though, we have a decision to make and we're not quite so sure. In, in this scenario... They're trying to decide between two men. They couldn't turn to Scripture and say, oh, look, Scripture says, don't choose Joseph. Please choose Matthias. But there were principles from Scripture they could consult, and they did. But then they prayed. And so sometimes we just need to pray that God would begin to, I mean, always. But sometimes a decision isn't made just by reading God's Word, but by reading God's Word and then asking God to align us to His will. And then there are isolated, please hear me say this, there are isolated times, not often, but there are isolated times where even after reading God's word and even after praying, there may not be a clear-cut, obvious answer. And in this case, that was what took place. I'm going to share another conversation I had with a friend this week. The deacons are in the process of trying to ask some additional men to serve as deacons of our church body. I would ask you as the church family, would you be praying through those decisions? But I was talking with one of these men, and he right now is not really clear on whether he should say yes to that or not. He has the qualifications. He loves this church family. He serves this church family. But the question is, is this the right season for him to step up and do this, or is he supposed to continue to serve in the ways that he is and not add something else to his plate right now, okay? So... God can honor either one of those answers. What is he going to do? I don't know, but I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't his Holy Spirit to tell him what to do. But what I said was, read God's word, pray about it, 
perhaps seek some godly counsels for some other people. And then whenever you come to your decision, trust that it was God's decision. Step out in confidence, whether that's a yes or a no. Step out in confidence that God led you to that decision and trust his sovereignty. Now, I want to be really careful here because I don't want you to walk out and say, you know what Alan just said, sometimes I don't know the answer, so I just got to do what I think I ought to do and go do it. No, that is far from what I said. Let's be clear. There are many things in Scripture that will tell us point blank, yay or nay, always do what Scripture says. There's plenty of times that through prayer with others, we have a clarity on what we should do. And there's other times where we have maybe a really close clarity, not quite sure, but we know that God would be honored in either answer and I got to make a decision. And so when I make that decision, let me step out trusting God's sovereignty to work through it. Perhaps an example that might help a little bit. Let's just say a random person at our church was thinking about serving in ministry and they were trying to decide whether to serve in youth or children. And they knew that they could only serve in one place or the other and they seek counsel from uh, Howard about where to serve, other staff, other elders, all of these things. But at the end of the day, they really feel like either one. So is there a wrong answer there? Like if, if, if he or she hasn't had a clear word from God, maybe instead of waiting four more years for clarity, maybe God's just saying step out in confidence to the one that you feel like maybe is the right way to go and then trust my sovereignty to work. Either way, through all of this, making decisions, we must first and foremost seek God's word prayerfully consider what God's telling us to do and allow him to line us up with his will and then trust his sovereignty. Talked a lot about decisions today. There's a decision that every single one of us is faced with. And actually speaking of God's sovereignty, it's the work of God in us to help us make the decision. We don't make this decision on our own after all, at all. Rather, it's God's at work in us and will we say yes to him or not? And that decision is, am I going to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? You see, the, the scripture, all throughout scripture, from beginning to end, paints a picture of what the human condition is. And the human condition is that we were created in God's image. We were created to be in right relationship with God. We were created to, to know him and to spend time with him. But then from the very beginning, look at the third chapter of the scripture, Genesis 3. We see that sin enters into the equation, and whenever we say no to God, we say yes to our way, then we are sinners eternally forever separated from a holy, perfect God because our sin is offensive to that holy God. But the good, amazing news is this, and it's the news that these apostles were supposed to go out and be witnesses of, and the truth of the matter is this, that God's solution for our sin problem is not ourselves and what we do to make it right, but it's what he did for us to make it right. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he walked this planet, he lived a perfect life that you and I cannot live, and he did not deserve death, which is the consequence of our sin. He did not deserve to, to die, and yet we find out that he was crucified on the cross for our, for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might have his righteousness. Good news is he didn't die on a cross and 
go to a grave and stay there forever. No, the scripture tells us very clearly that he died on the cross. Three days later was raised to life, overcoming sin and death. So the decision before us today is this. Are we going to say, that's kind of a cool story? Uh, yeah, I kind of know God loves me and I'll kind of do my thing. I'm going to keep living life like I want to. Or are you going to say yes to Jesus? See, Jesus died for our sin, was buried and was raised. And if we will turn to him in repentance of our sin and trust in him in, in, in the faith that he gives us to trust in him, then we can experience salvation. This morning, lots of decisions are probably floating around in your head. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to say yes to him? Have you already trusted in Jesus? Are you going to say yes to follow him more closely? Are you going to lean in and be the, 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 the church members that, that you need to be for uh, the other church members of our church body? Are you going to allow people to come around you and serve you and love you as well? Are you going to make decisions based on an echo chamber of your own ideas and the ideas of others? Or are you going to make decisions based on what God's word says in consultation with other believers through prayer and trusting in his sovereignty? This morning we want to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And so we've got four different places around the, the worship center. Uh, I think we have four. We have two here and two in the back. And they all have um, uh, elements here. Um, we have this that has the bread on one side and juice on the other, and then we also have some, um, some gluten-free options for the bread uh, at each of the stations, I believe. Um, parents, in just a moment, I want to uh, let you know that if you've got a child that is a believer in Jesus Christ, that is in children's worship or infusion, that you uh, will have an opportunity to go get them in just a moment and bring them here. All of us who are believers in Jesus, as we spend time in prayer and are ready to receive the Lord's Supper, may do so. And all you will do is go to one of those four tables, and you'll pick up one of the pieces of element. If you need the gluten-free, do that. Get enough for you and your family. Take that back to your seat. And then in just a moment, we'll all take this together. Um, if you need to be served because you can't get up and about, or maybe you got a child on your lap or whatever, then all you have to do and you're ready to be served, just raise your hand. We've got deacons in the back of the room that can serve you that. But let's kind of think about what is the Lord's Supper all about. The Lord's Supper is about what Christ did for us on the cross. And he actually demonstrates for us through the context of the Passover. He and his disciples were celebrating the Passover, the evening of his arrest. And as he celebrates the Passover meal with them, he begins to describe to them what he's doing is actually going to point to what's about to take place. That his body's about to be broken, his blood's about to be poured out, all for them and for us. I want to read the Lord's Supper uh, story from the book of Luke because Acts is written by Luke, so I thought we'd look to the, the gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 23. This is the night of Jesus' uh, arrest. They're celebrating the Passover. It says, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and here's what he said to them. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before his crucifixion. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so then Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying... 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me, he's talking about Judas right here, we read about Judas a minute ago, the one who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Again, we read all about Judas today. And they began to question one another which of them it would be who was going to do this. But what I want us to focus most of all on is that Jesus took the cup, he took the bread, and he said, this represents my broken body, which is the new covenant that your sins might be forgiven. I'm going to ask Andrew to come this way. I believe he's going to play some music for us in just a moment. And as the music is playing and as he is singing, we'll have a chance to sing this together in a moment, I believe, as a church body. But as he plays and sings, would you pray there at your seat? Would you respond to what God has done to your heart, in your heart today? Would you prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper? Would you ask God to forgive you of any sins that may be unconfessed? If you're parents and you want to get your kids out of fusion or uh, children's worship to come be a part of this, you can do that. And then at the conclusion of your prayer, it can be while he's singing, it doesn't matter when you're ready, then go to one of the four tables, pick up one of the pieces of element, and then hold on to it, and we'll take that together. Let me lead us in prayer.